This program is brought to you by the University of California, Davis on iTunes U. For more information, please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu. I am so delighted to see such a nice full room and to see some familiar faces and some new faces. Um, and we will have our student, Melanie, Melanie Ross, <laughs> speak to us today. She is one of a group of students who are going to be speaking at the 8th Annual Hawaii International Conference on the Arts and Humanities uh, coming right up. And so she's going to uh, uh, give us a preview of what she will talk about with Hawaii. Would you like to begin? Sure. Right. Thank you. Alice Neal's unique approach to portraiture opens up many avenues for examination and discussion. In her lifetime from 1900 to 1984, Neal saw women gain the right to vote, infiltrate the job market, and make significant inroads in higher education. Her paintings of married couples demonstrate Neal's ability to capture the essence of the female struggle in American society. In examining these paintings of couples, we can draw conclusions about Neal's own feelings towards relationships and see the changing social role of women illustrated during her lifetime. Although Neal paints as skillfully as any man, she interprets her sitters through a female gaze that has been marginalized in the history of art. Neal's own life was a rebellion against the confined roles of women in America. It could be her own experiences that led her to empathize with younger women, tackling the same gender roles she rejected in her youth. Neal's paintings of couples in the 1960s and 70s were the product of a woman who had endured trials and related to women still fighting for equality. A brief overview of her own life will set up the conflict from which Neal saw her subjects. Alice Neal lived a remarkable life for a woman by challenging the domestic role expected of her and pursuing her career. Notably, Neil never had a lasting monogamous relationship with a man. She briefly married once at the age of 25 to Carlos Enriquez, who may have been her first love. In her marriage, she immediately began to shy away from commitment. She dreaded that he might expect her to be a dutiful wife who keeps house and bears children. When pregnancy followed her marriage, Neil's fears intensified as motherhood threatened her freedom. The birth of her child created an inner struggle and she split her time between painting and playing the role of caretaker. This is the first instance of struggle Neil had in her own rebellion against fighting the classic role of the American woman. Pursuing a career like painting was considered a man's occupation. Neil was frustrated over the limiting roles of motherhood and tried to juggle the responsibility of a young child with her own life and desire to paint. In 1930, after becoming a mother just two years earlier, Neil's health deteriorated. She explained this time in her life by saying, quote, I always had this awful dichotomy. I loved Isabetta, her first child, but I wanted to paint. Also, a terrible rivalry sprang up between Carlos and me because he had to make money any way he could, end quote. When Carlos initially took Isabetta to visit her parents in 1930 at the age of two, Neil had her first break from motherhood, and she recalled at this time, quote, All I did at first was paint day and night, but gradually I began to wear down. I visited them, Neil's parents, and Clown, and saw a couple on a train, which I painted from memory. You see how his arm looks like a speckled trout? You see how miserable she is, but how happy he looks? <laughs> Even in this early image of a couple, Neil questions the relationship of men and women and mirrors her own unhappiness in other women. Neil could empathize with the woman on the brink of motherhood and depicted a painfully compelling portrait that reflects Neil's own feelings in her marriage. After her husband left without her for Paris, Neil's in-laws ultimately, 
ultimately raised Isabetta because Neil was admitted to a series of menstrual, mental institutions. The end of her first relationship and new role as a mother left Neil confused, depressed, and suicidal, resulting in a nervous breakdown. It appeared that Neil's problems stemmed more from her social identity crisis as an unconventional woman who longed for a career in a male-dominated society. After spending over a year in a suicidal ward, Neil recovered and claimed she became, quote, more normal than normal. While this is a self-proclamation, she remained mentally stable for the rest of her life. Having gained a greater self-awareness, Neil lived her life without emotional strife, remaining single, painting on her own terms, and not con conforming to the traditional housewife role. More importantly, after her own crisis in therapy, Neil developed the ability to empathize with her models. Seeing through the skin, Neil possessed the ability to read and record her subject's most private emotions and was sensitive to the struggles of a younger generation of women. At a more mature age, Neil gave birth to two boys, each from a different father. This time around, she would successfully juggle the role of painter and parental figure, both economically and emotionally supporting, her, supporting herself as well as her two children. In 1967, Neil painted a fellow artist and his wife in Red Grooms and Mimi Gross. The image on the left is the original sketch and the right is the painting. Her palette is ironically full of red, a fiery brash color that sets the mood of this otherwise still setting. It is red who interacts with the viewer. His brow is fur furrowed and his hands holds the weight of his head with his index finger pressing into his brain as if pointing to his genius. His lips are pursed as if he is about to speak. He sternly grasps Mimi's hands as if he's trying to bring her along on his thought process. Mimi, on the other hand, is lagging as she leans back in her red armchair. With her head turned completely away from red, her body language shows her attention is not on him. Her mind is elsewhere and she stares at the crudely outlined rectangle which we are led to believe is a window beside her. Red seems to try desperately to contain her, but her mind is focused on the action that lies on the street, rejecting the domestic setting of the portrait. Mimi's mood might be a consequence of the position women held in the 1960s. In the painting, Neil recognizes the resistance on Mimi's face disguised as unsettling boredom. As a woman, Neil is more in tune with her feelings of, of oppression women were facing and their struggle for equality. Consciously or unconsciously, Neil's brush sympathizes with Mimi's struggle in her marriage and her innermost thoughts are exposed in the painting. Ironically, Mimi and Red split up soon after the portrait was pain painted. Red confessed later that it wasn't until he saw the painting that he realized the distance between himself and Mimi. Unaware of he and his wife's growing detachment, it was Neil's vision that foreshadowed the couple's future through pure observation. We can see further evidence of these ha haunting observations in another painting from 1967. That year, Neil traveled with her son Hartley to San Francisco for an exhibition. It was on this visit that Neil painted the portrait of her son's friend, pregnant Julian Algis. The couple is painted horizontally across the canvas, both figures lounging on the floor. Julie lies closest to the viewer, utterly exposed and nude. Algis rests behind her, completely clothed, wearing everything down to his socks. The juxtaposition of the clothed and un unclothed figures is jarring. Neil paints the nude woman, a common subject for male artists, from a female perspective. At first glance, Neil appears to have represented Julie as a sexual object sprawled out to the delight of the viewer. 
but it becomes clear that Julie is more than a nude Venus or courtesan from Western art history. Instead, she is a symbol of a woman on the brink of motherhood in the late 1960s. Even though there are two figures in Julie and Algis, the painting is more about Julie, exposed and vulnerable in the foreground. Through her expression, the viewer is aware of her emotions and fears that come with her first pregnancy. Julie will soon see that motherhood causes a loss of privacy. Julie's leg is slightly lifted, exposing her vagina just as if she were in the de delivery room. Her swollen breasts will become feeding tubes at inconvenient times and places, sacrificing her modesty. Julie's future compromise of self will affect her and not her husband. Even though her body is relaxed, her eyes are awake and shine like those of a wild beast. They reveal her fears of impending motherhood. Her lips are tightly closed and turning downward. Neil, already a mother of three grown children, could be anticipating the struggles and hardships ahead for Julie. Perhaps she pities or empathizes with Julie, seeing her naive, carefree lifestyle is about to drastically change. Neil's aged feminine perspective sheds light on Julie's realistic future rather than merely sexualizing her nude body. The depiction of Algis further enhances the theme of gender difference. Algis has a cool confidence about him as he rests his leg, rests with his legs crossed and his arms gingerly wrapped around his pregnant wife. He has planted his seed and now calmly awaits the future. His eyes are small and pale grayish blue, reflecting the cool tones of his business shirt. His classic attire of collared shirt, dark slacks, and socks clue the viewer into his role as the breadwinner. Neil depicts him proudly holding his naked and beautiful wife as his trophy. With the birth of their child, her role will officially be in the home. Neil's placement of the male head stacked above the female reflects the hierarchy of men over women in 1967. The implications of this hierarchy are even more pronounced by the contrast between Julie's nudity and Algis' business suit, itself a symbol of male power. Not only is Neil capturing the young couple, she also encapsulates the roles society inflicts on men and women. Four years later, in 1971, Neil painted Pregnant Woman. The figures in this painting seem directly related to those in Pregnant Julie and Algis. Similarly, the man's head is stacked directly above the woman, only this time it does not happen as naturally. The woman is Neil's daughter-in-law, Nancy, who is carefully painted reclining on a rough, unfinished couch. The painting details her bulging midsection, limbs, and face. The man's head, presumably that of Neil's son, Richard, peeks out from behind the, the couch as if it is floating. No hint of legs come out from behind the sofa and no arms drape lovingly around his wife. The man's head appears instead to be an afterthought, painted in later by Neil, as if to bring in the hierarchical presence of the man over his pregnant wife. Richard's head is left unfi unfinished with only a little bit of muddy green color added. Instead, he has a ghostly hovering presence, perhaps included to suggest his minimal role in the harsh reality of pregnancy. In this painting, Neil makes a strong, stronger statement about the power of the pregnant woman. The male is again completely concealed behind the nude female, only this time the man appears to have no bodily presence or role in the scene. She deliberately makes the painting a dual portrait even though Richard is not really there. Pregnant Nancy shares the same wide eyes as pregnant Julie. Her eyes feature dark circles of fatigue. Nancy, perhaps further along in her pregnancy, looks quite uncomfortable. Neil points out, it's almost tragic the way the top part of her body is pulling the ribs. 
Nancy seems to be painted very sympathetically with lively shades of purple and green added to her belly. Her nipples look painfully hard and jut out from her breasts much like her full belly. Perhaps Neil chose to add Richard's head after observing the discomfort Nancy was going through as her body morphs into an incubator. Neil includes the male catalyst that is equally responsible for the woman's discomfort but shares no part in her bodily pain. In 1972, Neil paints a portrait of husband and wife, Benny and Mary Ellen Andrews. Neil and fellow artist Benny had known each other for years, exhibiting together twice. Their familiarity and comfort with each other comes out in the painting. One could draw a line down the canvas separating Mary Ellen in the left third of the painting and Benny in the larger two thirds of the painting. The geometry illustrates the lack of balance even in this interracial couple. Furthermore, there is no physical or emotional connection between the pair. The point at which the couple's arms might meet in the middle is illustrated with a hard line of separation. Mary Ellen is squeezed into the corner of the painting and looks visibly annoyed. She rests her elbows on the corner of the armchair where Benny is comfortably sprawled out. She hunches over the small backless ottoman. She is visibly bothered by her second class treatment and posing for the portrait. Mary Ellen's eyes stare straight ahead into the viewer and burn with fiery passion, while her eyes are painted wide open and outlined with dark circles accentuated with blue shadow, Benny's eyes are closing, characterized by a dull gray color. Mary Ellen's right eyebrow is slightly arched. Her face is made up of a series of hard lines that portray a serious and strong woman. Benny, on the other hand, is much less serious as he lounges with one leg up. His posture, more than anything, reflects his attitude and annoyance with having to sit for his portrait. He looks bored and leans away from his wife towards the crude line drawn on the edge of the painting to signify the corner of the room. In Neil's portrait of husband and wife, Cindy Nimser and Chuck, painted in 1975, the couple's feelings can be read on their faces. They are both seated, completely nude, on Neil's green couch, but fill up only half the canvas. Cindy looks distraught as if carrying a heavy burden, her jaws tightly clenched and her dark eyes staring straight ahead. Cordially placing herself between the viewer and her spouse, her posture is a physical barrier between the viewer and, and her companion. Hardly traditional, it is nevertheless a loving portrait. Nimser sits demurely before her husband, shielding his nakedness while he appears as the behind-the-scenes support of his wife. Cindy's eyes seem to express all her doubts and insecurities. Her body is tense, her back straight and rigid, and her weight centered from elbows to her flat feet. Editor of the feminist arts movement, Cindy's assertive nature evidenced in the portrait is a unique characteristic. Perhaps Neil admired this quality in Cindy and wanted to capture it in the painting. In stark contrast, Chuck leans back comfortably on the sofa, shoulders relaxed, legs crossed, and arms casually wrapped around his wife. He is taking the passive role, letting his wife answer to her instincts. His hand, which rests on her exposed side, is crudely drawn without much detail, but still boldly shows his gold wedding band. Chuck's face is more relaxed, with deeper shadows and soft curving lines. He looks content. Although Neil often leaves elements of her paintings unfinished and makes no attempt to cover up her initial sketchy lines, this painting contains only one raw element. <clears throat> the couch leg directly under the couple has been roughly outlined but is unfinished. There are a couple of vertical lines and drip marks that do not leave the abstract, do not leave the abstract shape empty but draw more curiosity to them. 
Perhaps the unfinished couch leg remains a symbol of unrest or instability. All other elements in the painting are carefully constructed and the completion of this last couch leg would have only taken a few paint strokes. Perhaps there is some reason for its pending status. The couch could be read as a metaphor for marriage. Neil may be skeptical about this traditional marriage and the contentment of the people within it. Perhaps she wanted to leave one element raw as if to imply not everything is perfect. In Neil's career as an artist, she has captured a history of people and feelings at a critical point of social change. Throughout her life, spanning almost an entire century, American women were struggling to redefine their roles in society. Neil was a frontrunner for the new American woman who was independent, looking to create her own career on par with any man. What Neil discovered and illustrates in her portraits is the tension and rivalry present in the oppressed female gender. This sensitivity to tension may have been underscored by her own feelings about women and relationships. The paintings of couples represent the culmination of Neil's life experiences. She painted most of her couples later in life as a mature artist and woman, having time to reflect on her own experiences and to see them mirrored in the lives of others. She uses her female gaze as well as her life experiences to uncover the feelings and feels, fears of her sitters that are right in line with those she had as a young woman. Her depictions of couples record the secret battle of the sexes by expressing the repressed and hidden feelings of women who were trapped in their roles as second-class citizens. Okay. So if anyone has any questions or comments. That was a wonderfully clear and informative lecture. Very, very beautifully presented. But because I don't know anything about the literature on Alice Neal, I don't know what you're doing that may be distinctive. So could you talk about that? Sure, sure. Um, there wasn't a whole lot written about Alice Neal because, of course, um, she was born in 1900. So for most of her life, she was um, able to support herself because of the WPA. She was part of those artists that received financial support. But it wasn't really until the feminist movement started getting big that she became recognized as an artist. So a lot of the literature that was written about her happened later in life. Um, there's one author, Patricia Hill, who um, interviewed her the last year of her life in 84 and has published a nice biography on her. But as far as um, her works, um, there have been a couple of articles written about her pregnant women, because she did paint a lot of pregnant women, but none specifically on, on couples. This is a little bit <coughs> tangential, maybe, to the, the main gist of your presentation, but um, I'm wondering if, if there's anything further you can say about her style or about the formal uh, way in which she paints. I mean, one of the things that seems quite striking about it, you know, in addition to the, the leg on the couch that you pointed out nicely, um, is the way in which it's kind of a folky or like a cartoonish style. Yeah. And so one of the qualities of that, it seems to me, is that kind of cartoonish style is it makes it uh, endearing in a certain way. Right? And so what I was wondering about it is we were talking about the sort of psychological dynamics as they're represented in the, in the faces and so on, is how um, that endearing quality of the style, if we can call it that, plays into those psychological dynamics, how it kind of sets the viewer emotionally or affectively in relationship to the, to the 
Well, I think the way that she used color a lot, um, especially in the faces, she adds kind of unnatural colors that seem to kind of display different emotions and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So I think definitely that folky quality is more an expressive way of her describing the emotions of the of the people she paints. She was a portrait painter, but she was never commissioned to paint portraits. Mm -hmm. And I don't. I think that if you look at these, you wouldn't really want her to paint your portrait because mm -hmm. she always asked people, "Oh, can I paint your portrait?" And there was something about them that she wanted, that she thought was interesting and wanted to express. So she was definitely not making a living making pretty people, but instead kind of exposing, you know, some inner feelings about these people. And I, I think that that her specific style and, and color add to that. Um, so do you think, you know, when she's choosing her subjects and things in, in the way she's representing them, is she more interested in saying something about herself and her, her inner sort of femininity um, rather than making claims as to how women were seen in society at large? I mean, it, is, is it right to, to put her under a sort of feminist category? Yeah, I mean, she has this famous quote that says, I hate women's lib. I was women's lib before there was women's lib. So, I mean, she did not ever consider herself a feminist artist. And when that became very popular, I think she was almost offended that she got, like, lumped into that category. But I think that the way, like, her specific, the way she lived her life, because being a single mother in the 1930s of having two children and living in Harlem was not a typical white woman thing to do from Pennsylvania. So I think that her life experiences, and especially like the time she spent in um, mental institutions made her very apt to picking up on other people's emotions so that when she painted their portraits, she was really pulling things out of them. And that because of her own experiences, maybe she could empathize certain feelings, especially towards women that she pulled out of them. But I, I think that her, her life experiences were really what made her depict and relate to people the way she did. Mm -hmm. um, I have a question about her saying that she felt that after leaving the mental institution she was more normal than normal. Mm -hmm. So how do you interpret that and how do you see that playing a role in her painting? Well, there has been a lot of um, stuff written, psychologists write about um, empathy and how empathy affects people. And one thing that um, has, has been written a lot about is people that spend time in mental institutions then have like a hypersensitivity to other people. Mm -hmm. So this is something that, that psychologists have explored. Mm -hmm. And I've read just a little bit about it. But mm -hmm. I think that that's where she's coming from when she said, you know, she, she never had like a relapse and she just did whatever she wanted mm -hmm. after that. She, right after she got out of the mental institution, she ran off with a sailor and was just perfectly fine. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. Her grandson? grandson? Yeah, yeah. And it's a lot of really great uh, insight and a lot of family interviews and a lot of uh, kind of a more inside view from the family side. Yeah. But it's a really great documentary. I think her granddaughter is now a photographer too. Mm -hmm. Vogue just did a big spread mm -hmm. on her granddaughter. So she's got it in the family. Yeah, but the film is, is out. It should be available on the Yeah. Is there any information about how she uh, talked to people into taking their clothes off? 
Yeah, I mean, in these two situations, she, the woman in the middle is Nancy, her um, daughter-in-law, and she did a lot of portraits of her. Mm. Um, and, and then there's a lot of uh, male um, nude portraits that she did, which are kind of funny, too. But yeah, there, there have been people that have written about how, how funny she is when she paints their portrait, because she'll just chatter on and on and on. So I don't know if that makes them more comfortable with Hmm. being nude in front of her, but she seems like a fun person to be around. <laughs> she charmed Yeah, definitely, definitely. So you have one of these male leads as one of the couples that you make part of your talks. I'm wondering uh, what, when that began and whether, uh, uh, and how it connects to other artists at the time of realist artists who were, were with males um, her first boyfriend that she had um, after the sailor <laughs> she dated this guy for a while and did a lot of really creepy drawings of him with several phalli and um, new drawings. He actually destroyed a good bit of her early work. He was kind of a mental case himself. But I think she was definitely drawing male nudes early. Although they were, they're mostly drawings that her have survived. I don't know if she was painting yeah, no, them. I mean, these are like really as portraits. You know, I mean, you can imagine a, a photographic portrait. Right. You know, more like a surrealist would have, you know, made it, or, mm. you know, something like Dolly would have uh, made, or something like you know, John Graham would have made, you know, with, uh, you know, kind of showing a lot of angst uh, right. related to uh, male nudity. Did these, something that looks like a normal portrait in a kind of painted portrait format predate, I mean, go as far back as I, I don't think that any of the paintings were that explicit, male or female. She, she seemed to do more than nudity later. Do you have any thoughts on why the, this male nudity came about? She just got bolder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She did a, a couple of um, nude male portraits of um, the one of the directors of the, the Met. That's in kind of the um, like female sprawled I'm out. Not that. <laughs> <laughs> that came later. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I don't I don't know the dates on them. So. When you showed the um, portrait of her daughter-in-law with her presumably her son in it in a, in a larger scale. It looked to me as though the male face was distinctly less modeled and detailed than the female face, and also that it has some, some sort of framing lines around it, mm -hmm. as though it might even be a portrait within a portrait that is indicated mm -hmm. as being in a different level of reality. Yeah. And the idea of a portrait within a portrait, of course, is a, a sort of an old cliche, and makes me wonder if there isn't a sort of low-level historicism about this kind of thing of, of the couple's portrait. 
not that it would be a big deal, I think for someone of her generation, it would be almost taken for granted mm -hmm. that you have that kind of historical knowledge and maybe playing with it. Yeah. Is there any discussion of whether she did that kind of thing, whether she, she played with older conventions? I don't know that she's done that in any of her other portraits, but this one is, is very strange because he's obviously not on the couch with her and he's, it's just a floating head and it's not like any of her other paintings. But I mean, the idea of the couple's portrait where there's psychological nuances in the relationship is an older idea. Sure. So I'm wondering if, if in general, there's been some sense that her work takes older conventions and turns them inside out or plays with them. Yeah, I've never read anything about that, but it's definitely possible. <coughs> kind of a hypothetical question. Um, if you didn't know anything about Alice Neal's biography, would you still read the paintings that way? Um, I feel like even the fact that these two pregnant women in particular allowed themselves to be painted nude, there might be something something more powerful there, not not just the negative. I mean, obviously it's uncomfortable, but yeah. there must be another side to it. I just felt like some of your language was sort of harsh when it came to, <laughs> <laughs> when it came to the, the pregnancy issue, but yeah. I was just wondering if it was sort of which came first. Yeah, she, well she has a whole series on pregnant women, so she was obviously drawn to that, and, and when in her biography when she was asked about that you know why do you paint all these pregnant women her response was just like it's a natural part of life so it's something that I capture mm -hmm. she didn't really seem to, to have anything special about it you actually trust what the artist said <laughs> <laughs> good point <laughs> when was our bodies ourselves published first mm -hmm. uh, wasn't it like right around uh, something like This is very typical of her style. Even so before that. Yes, okay. yes. Just checking. Okay. 73. Thank you. 
have a comment, I guess, uh, maybe you can answer it somehow, but I don't know how to phrase it as a question. But um, along the same line as what Lindsay was saying, when I saw, um, I think it's Algis and his wife, mm -hmm. that she's pregnant, I couldn't help but think of like Olympia. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I know that she would have seen that, probably. Yeah. And is there any kind of quote on that or discussion on that connection? Yeah. Not that I've read, but. So I mean, I just I think that there is a connection to like the broader world of Western art history, even yeah. if she was trying to. Well, she lived in New York too, yeah. so I mean, she was definitely exposed yeah. to Western art. Yeah. So I don't know, like we've been talking about what's normal and what's not, and if she's inverting these things or accepting them, and I just don't know um, where she stands in terms of like herself as an artist in yeah. the Western world. Um, do you have any thoughts? And I think she just. She always painted portraits of people that are very telling and psychological. <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure she was influenced by art history, and like Professor Ruda was saying, probably aware of different conventions of painting. So, yeah. Well, thank you all. To find out more information on the people and events affiliated with the Art History Symposium, please visit our website at www.ucdavis.edu forward slash art history. You can also look us up on Facebook under Art History UC Davis. Your feedback and commentary is always welcome. This has been the Art History Symposium, brought to you by the University of California at Davis. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by UC Davis on iTunes U. Please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu.